Hey all, C. Brian Brown here, and I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift, Emotional Eaters. If you enjoy the story, you can find more of my work at cbrianbrown.net. You can also check out more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. Thanks for listening. Casey Adams darts across the street, throwing a hand up as if the gesture can stop the two tons of steel heading right for her. The car lays rubber and swerves, narrowly missing. The heated air rustles the fabric of her skirt. The driver shouts unintelligible words as she hops up, unscathed, onto the sidewalk. Happy Thanksgiving, she calls after the car with a wave. She checks her text messages. Nothing from Mitch just a request from her husband, Ian, to pick up some yinling black and tan. Casey hurries toward the Indian grocery around the next corner. Her heels clack on the sidewalk, a fashionable drum roll as her pace increases. Slow. Fast. Faster. Her purse bounces against her hip, the building baseline enabling her, exciting her. She'd met Mitch at the store, and they'd walk arm-in-arm to the hotel two blocks over, where the staff knew them as Mr. and Mrs. Davenport. And why not? They both wear wedding rings. Just ones given to them by other people. The sun, high and full, sheds bright light and little heat on the festive day. Casey pulls her coat tighter and puts her head down against the soft breeze, knowing it's not going to do any good. Her skirt, ankle length, thin and loose, leaves her bare legs open to leak body heat at an alarming rate. The fact she wears no underwear, Mitch's single request, adds to her chill. But that is a delicious frost. Casey turns the corner and sidesteps a man exiting the Indian grocery. He apologizes in heavily accented English, and she waves him on, smiling. But he doesn't move, only continues to speak, his voice becoming more and more unintelligible by the second. I don't understand, she says. I'm fine, I promise. We really didn't even run into each other. He flutters about her, touching her shoulder, her side, her cheek. Seriously, guy, back off. When he cups the sides of her head with both of his hands, she shoves him away and drops a hand into her purse. It's a practice move, and within seconds she brings up the mace can, always within easy reach. Stay over there. You take another step toward me and I'll blast you, I swear. Casey backs up, 
each step carefully considered, lest she catch a heel and fall over, making herself easy prey for this guy. Behind her, a three-foot wrought iron fence, the spike shaped like a fleur-de-lis, surrounds a kid's park, the kind of place she'd bring her daughter. Casey goes through an open space where there had once been a gate, but all that remains now are empty hinges. The man watches her, but keeps his distance, and Casey doesn't stop her backward motion. Where are you, Mitch? She should have known the store would be open with all the Black Friday sales starting in a few hours. It'll be a madhouse, one she'll have to join before going home. It wouldn't do to show up back home without the spices she told Ian she forgot during her normal shopping trip. A flash of color inside the park draws Casey's focus away from her stalker. She searches for the source, but the light inside the fence seems dimmer than out on the sidewalk. A low breeze tickles her ankle, toying with the idea of pushing her skirt up and exposing her. Her hands bat it down. The seats on the swing sway, the rusted metal chains whispering in the afternoon air. The paint flakes off in her hands when she runs her finger along the support bars. The teeter-totters with their wide, flat seats and bent metal poles are more worn catapults than children's playthings. And what about these animal bouncers? A unicorn, its horns sheared in half and missing its tail, and a pegasus with only one wing. Everything is dull, lifeless, and nothing here reflects the sun's light. It reminds Casey of the washed-out hues favored by Tim Burton. The wind kicks up another notch, and Casey fights harder to keep her skirt down. Those bright colors flash again, drawing her to the far side of the park. A tall stone building rears up before her, and she wonders if the park is part of the building's amenities. Something to entice parents to move or stay here. Her thoughts don't linger long there, however, as Mitch's scarf hangs from the handles of two glass doors, the ends billowing like a flag. He'd wound it up around the handles, and she yanks it off, pressing it to her nose and inhaling his scent. Grinning, she slips between the doors and into the building. Mitch? He doesn't answer, but the building does, echoing his name back at her. She stands in a large, empty space that may have been a lobby or some sort of great room. Casey can't tell. Boards cover the windows, but many of those have holes, and the light from outside spotlights small areas. Most of the illumination comes from the doors behind her, and it stretches about halfway across the room. But that's the way of light, isn't it? It only reveals so much. The rest, one has to figure out on her own. The carpet beneath her feet is old, yellowed in spots, worn clear down to the subfloor and others, but a thick layer of dirt and grime covers it all. Mitch's footprints lead away from the door, and Casey follows them, glancing up every few seconds to make sure she's not going to run into some discarded piece of furniture or trip over some random chunk of carpet. Ahead, an odd footprint on the carpet catches her interest. The print is large twice the size of Mitch's, and outlined in the grime are three toes, each one longer than her index finger. It comes at Mitch from the side, perpendicular to his position. What's more disturbing, however, is that she doesn't see an origin point. It's like they just materialize two steps away. Another three steps in, 
and Mitch's footprints are overshadowed by the new ones, as if they're walking on top of him. Even more worrisome is the second set of prints on Mitch's other side. All three sets lead to an elevator several hundred feet away. Casey's body thrums with tension. Her muscles ache with the desire to flee, to go home to husband and child, to leave this place behind. Get a grip, she thinks. It's an adventure. That's what each affair was, right? Something new, magical, worthy of a book? Mitch is taking it to the next level. The elevator, old yet pristine, is the carriage that will carry Casey to her illicit lover. The gilded fence is open, and bright electric light bathes the interior of the car. Casey can't imagine what it took for Mitch to set this all up on such short notice. She'd only made the offer for a holiday rendezvous two days ago, to forsake her family for a little fun. But the footprints... Casey shuts the nag down and strides into the elevator. The gate closes without a sound, and she smirks. It's too clean, too functional for the building, and she wonders if Mitch's company owns the place. These new urban developers had ideas on top of ideas, none of them ever prudent. She examines the call buttons and smiles, enjoying the originality. No fancy backlit numbers here, just little round buttons with the floor numbers printed underneath. There's a red fingerprint on the fourth floor button. Casey presses the button, finds it tacky, and whatever the red stuff is, it wasn't quite dry. She sniffs it, makes a face, and pulls a small package of tissues from her purse. The lift rises with a quiet steadiness that belies its apparent age. Each floor she passes is in disarray. Two have the walls torn out, exposing the support beams, the detritus scattered about the hall. The other is crammed full of painter scaffolds, old chairs, and bed frames. The elevator crests the fourth floor, and Casey finds herself facing another enormous room. Floor-to-ceiling windows are evenly spaced around the walls, and these, unlike the ones in the lower floor, aren't boarded over. Instead, they're streaked with thick rivulets of dirt, which blocks and filters the light into alternating stripes and squares of shadow. Opposite the elevators, a door and hallway run out of sight. Closer, and far more important, is the little girl waiting a few feet from the elevator. A fancy purple dress wraps the girl in an air of celebration and wealth, while accenting her green eyes and blonde hair. She's fiddling with an antique music box. Once the elevator stops, Casey steps out, her boots loud on the parquet floor. What are you playing at, Mitch? Casey wonders. This little kid doesn't belong here. Neither do you. Casey ignores the nag again, and deciding to play along, stops a few feet from the girl and clears her throat. Hello. Oh, hello. The girl answers, looking up from the box in her hands. The girl's voice is accented and sweet. British, maybe. But Casey can't tell a Midwestern drawl from a Southern one, so she isn't sure. I was just coming to collect you, but my music box stopped. That's a shame. It's very pretty. My daughter has a music box as well. It's not as old as yours, though. How old is your daughter? Sarah is eight. How old are you? I'm nine. My name is Victoria. What's yours? It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Casey. Have you seen my friend Mitch? 
Is he Sarah's father? Casey blinks at the rude question and asks, What? She had to have misheard the girl. Mitch wouldn't pay someone to be this impertinent. That's none of your business. Can you tell me where Mitch is? He might be in the dining room. There's a feast today, you know. Today we give thanks for what's happened in our lives and appreciate what we have. I really enjoyed this holiday. I'm aware of what day it is. Where's Mitch? Casey cut the last two words, intending them to be all sharp edges and mother's anger, but the girl just giggled. (laughs) If you know today's Thanksgiving, why aren't you at home? I'm sure Sarah wants to spend time with her mother. I'd love to spend time with mine again. You know what? That's really sweet. Can you just take me to Mitch, please? If you insist, I'd much rather show you the door. The door? Yes, the way out of here, so you can be with Sarah. You're really starting to creep me out. Once I find Mitch, I'll leave. Of course. Victoria says, a certain sadness tinging her words. This way, please. Victoria holds out her hand, and Casey, frowning, takes it. Casey had picked up a rotten apple at the store once. And that's how this girl's skin felt. Soft. Rotten. The girl leads Casey through a large open room, and she pictures a couch in front of a window, wing chairs and reading lamps, a grand piano in one corner. But when she tries to focus on them, they're gone. Nothing more than shadows in the dim, dust-filled light. This place must have been beautiful once. They walk down one hall and then another, and then a third. Casey can't keep up with the turns and stops trying after the fifth. Nothing about this place feels right. It's more than just the general state of dilapidation. The walls aren't far enough apart. The floor tilts a fraction of an inch, and the air is thinner than it should be. Casey and Ian had gone to Colorado a year ago, up to Breckenridge for the beer and the skiing. Walking around that quaint little town... She'd grown short of breath after five minutes. It had taken her body two days to adjust. That's what it's like inside this building. And she'd need to stop soon or pass out. It's not much further, Victoria says, as if sensing Casey's discomfort. Casey nods and clears her throat. Inside her purse, her cell phone vibrates three times, rattling keys and coins together in a haunting melody. There's a moment of silence before the phone buzzes three times again. Two text messages. It's about time, Mitch, she thinks. She roots around her purse until she finds her phone. Maybe she'll tell him to fuck off. She's not coming, and she's tired of traipsing around this old building playing his game. Casey stops walking when she reads the messages. Ian. I know you're not at the store. Ian. You've been gone too long. Casey. What are you talking about? I had to go to the Aldi on Carson. Some stores are closed and others are wore out of what I needed. I'll be home as soon as I can. Ian. Why are you lying to me? Casey. I don't appreciate being called a liar, Ian. What the hell is wrong with you? Are you coming? The girl asks. She stopped down the hall, facing a door. Mitch is in here. Yes, Casey says. Her phone vibrates in her hand as she joins the girl at the door. Do you want to check that first? It might be important. 
It might be Sarah. It's not Sarah, okay? You shouldn't talk about things you don't understand. I understand more than you imagine. Casey frowns and opens her mouth to speak, but reads the next message. Ian. Damn it, Casey, I'm not stupid. I turned on your phone's GPS a month ago. You're not on Carson. You're with him. Whoever he is. Please, come home and we'll work it out. Whatever it is. Casey fights sinking to the floor as her knees wobble and her stomach clenches. Ian's betrayal is a fist to her gut. Her GPS? Excuses, apologies, and recriminations gallop across her brain as her fingers fly to her phone's settings and location services. And there, buried in the long list of apps, is the one Ian used to track her. Her thumb hovers over the slider that will turn it off. Her phone buzzes, and Ian's next message pops up in the middle of the screen. No judgment. No anger. I love you, and I want to work it out. But you have to come home now. Screw you, Ian, she thinks, and discards his message. She closes her settings without shutting off the GPS and shoves the phone back into her purse. Casey lets out a short, harsh laugh. (laughs) You can watch my location remain the same for the next hour and know that another man is inside me. Will you be joining the feast or going home? I'd like to join the feast. As you wish. Victoria opens the door. The dining room, easily as large as the great room, is crowded with creatures. Things so different from anything Casey's ever seen. She's not sure they're real, or if they can even exist. But they move and make noise. A sort of chattering, like old typewriters. She realizes they're talking, carrying on conversations with each other, sometimes two or three at a time. The air escaping the room reeks. A cross between burnt rubber and blended fruit. Underneath those, she detects ammonia, like an unattended litter box. A creature moves and reveals a single large table dominating the center of the room. Mitch is on the table, strapped down and stripped of both clothes and skin. Casey screams. The creatures stare at her. Mitch raises his head and tries to speak. His mouth opens, his lips purse, but bloody drool is all that escapes his mouth. The creatures abandon him and move toward the door, toward her. They stand about seven feet tall, with long, thick arms that hang to their knees. The heads, conical in shape, with the wide part at the top, sit upon a thin stalk of a neck. Jagged, oddly shaped teeth fill the mouth near the narrow end. Round eyes follow Casey as she presses against the wall behind her. The first one reaches, six fingers outstretched, and it's wearing Ian's watch. The face is upside down, the same way he always wore it, so that he'd have to flip his wrist to read the time. How'd it get his watch? Was he here somewhere? Was this his idea of a joke? The fingers grip Casey's shoulder and reel her in. She can't resist. She knows that as soon as it grabs her. 
as soon as she smells Ian's Adidas cologne. Please, let me go. It's too late for that. You came willingly. There's some things I cannot control. That is the interesting thing about choices, isn't it? We make them, not knowing what will happen, yet hoping for something better. But hope, like fate, isn't always reliable. A second creature joins the first. It stands over Casey and titters, its teeth scraping and clicking as it grabs her other arm and helps pull her toward the room. This one wears her daughter's red bow looped through its ear. Casey had given the bow to Sarah on her first day of kindergarten. Sarah had cried herself to sleep the night before, insisting Mommy didn't love her anymore, and that was the only reason why Sarah had to go to school. Casey went to the store that night and bought the ribbon. In the morning, she'd tied it to Sarah's hair and told her that as long as she wore the ribbon, she'd know Mommy was with her and that Mommy loved her. Julia kept the bow in her keepsake box beside her bed. No, Casey moans. Another misshapen head swims into view, and with her tears, it's like Casey sees this one through a rain-covered window. Ian's wedding ring is laced through its lip, the way a teenager would wear a hoop earring. The creature clicks its teeth together, lowering itself into its face as inches from hers. It is a day of thanks, Victoria says. We're thankful for the good things we have, and the bad things we don't. But it's both the good and the bad things that make us who we are. We simply cannot exist without joy and love, without fear and pain, Casey cries, fighting the two creatures dragging her to the table. This is very true. And then we give freely of ourselves, our time, our love, our commitment. When those are abused, we want it to end. We're thankful the abuser is no longer in our lives. The delicate tinkling of silverware from the dining room invades Casey's conscious thoughts, like ants at a picnic, with quick and tiny legs, uncontrollable, irritating. The creature drags her to the table and lays her out, feet pointed at the door. The shadows around her move about, and the one that grabbed her leans over her body. It presses a finger into her shoulder, her chest, It pinches an arm in her thigh, shifting around her body as it does. It flips her onto her stomach and touches all around against the base of her spine. Please, Casey whispers. Please let me go home to my daughter. She needs me. I believe you'd say anything to leave. The girl walks away. Words are easy. The door bangs shut. A final gunshot, and Casey is alone with the creatures. The knife sears into Casey's back and pain burns down her legs and up her arms but only for a moment and then she loses all sensation Casey finds herself thankful for this small mercy and squeezes her eyes shut the creatures flip her body over once again and she waits for the gnashing of teeth and quiet grunts of a worthy meal Casey hears her name from a distance She opens her eyes to a blinding light and deafening sound. The man who accosted her outside the store smiles down at her, the stethoscope stuck in his ears, giving his head an odd shape. She rolls her eyes side to side. She's in an ambulance, on a gurney. Ian's face comes into view, and he rubs his scraggly chin. 
the light catches on his watch and wedding ring. You were hit by a car, he says. He holds up his other hand, dangling Sarah's red ribbon. Sarah wanted me to tell you she loves you. Casey tries to reach up and take Ian's hand, but her arm refuses her mind. I can't can't move my arm. Your back is broken, Ian says, his voice itching. It's lucky I came after you. The driver sped off. You came after me? Of course I did. I love you, Casey. I admit, for a moment while you lay there on the street, I almost left you to this other man. But I'm not ready for us to end. Casey cries and nods, apologies entering and leaving her mind in rapid succession. None of them are appropriate or sincere enough. None of them can say how thankful she is for him. And she knows that words are easy, too easy, and she'll have to find a better way. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lift. Today's episode featured a story by C. Brian Brown, Emotional Eaters. If you'd like more information on C. Brian Brown and his work, please visit cbrianbrown.net and follow him on Twitter at cbrianbrown. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda. If you'd like more information on Jeanette and her work, please visit horrormade.com and follow her on Twitter at horrormade. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give is to retweet, repost, and share the link to victoriaslift.com. Follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or Google, and coming soon to iTunes and Google Play. This show's feed is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The Lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The Lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams, wetalkofdreams.com. This episode was scored by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds. 
Incidental music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Lift is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and co-creator, Cynthia Lohman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com forward slash S1E2. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.